A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Welcome to this bonus TLS long read produced by Noah, News Over Audio. If you'd like to listen to more audio articles from the TLS, you can do so on the TLS website or the News Over Audio app. Narrated by Noah. Listen to more of the world's best journalism on the Noah app or at newsoveraudio.com. You're listening to the TLS. This is A Town Called Sue. How Russian Oligarchs Use British Courts to Close Down Investigative Journalism by Geoffrey Robertson from the issue of January the 20th, 2023. This article is an edited extract from Lawfare, How Russians, the Rich and the Government, Try to Prevent Free Speech and How to Stop Them by Geoffrey Robertson, KC, published by TLS Books. Think of what our nation stands for. Books from boots and country lanes. Free speech, free passes, class distinction, democracy and proper drains. So goes the poem in Westminster Abbey by John Betjeman. In Betjeman's England, free speech washes like fluoride through the suburban water supply, but as a cultural assumption rather than as a constitutional right. When liberty exists as a state of mind, unprotected by legal rights, it gets limited when uncongenial to people with real power, assisted by those George Orwell termed the striped trousered ones who rule, notably judges, treasury solicitors and reputation lawyers. As Orwell pointed out in the introduction to Animal Farm, which his left-wing publisher turned down because it insulted Stalin, if liberty means anything at all, it means the right to tell people what they do not want to hear an aphorism engraved on his statue outside the BBC's headquarters, as a spur to the corporation to resist government pressure. But investigative journalism remains a struggle to tell inconvenient truths against the wishes not merely of governments, but of oligarchs and wealthy public figures, and powerful transnational corporations wishing to forbish their reputations. Nonetheless, free speech lives not in our law, but in our rhetoric and our national pride. It was described by the Justice Secretary, Dominic Raab, as a quintessentially UK right, a unique and precious liberty on which the UK has historically placed great emphasis in our traditions. This is nonsense. 
Magna Carta was silent on the subject in 1215, and in 1275 came our first statutory prohibition. The crime of scandalum magnatum, to protect the great men of the realm from speech that might arouse the public against them. Hence Lord Coke's maxim that the greater the truth, the greater the libel. He was explaining, with homely seventeenth-century sexism, that a woman would not grieve to be told she had a red nose unless she had one. Criminal libel sent to jail those who discomforted great men of the realm or the king or government. During the Civil War, Parliament decided to set up a board of the good and the wise to license newspapers, which led the poet John Milton to issue an immortal cry for press freedom, the Aeropagitica, declaring, Promiscuous reading is necessary to the constituting of human nature. The attempt to keep out evil doctrine by licensing is like the exploit of that gallant man who thought to keep out the crows by shutting his park gate. However, during the Restoration, a sinister figure emerged, a surveyor of the press, who spied out sedition and sent publishers to the gallows. Milton himself was lucky to escape, and his epic poem, Paradise Lost, was burnt by the public hangman, for suggesting that an eclipse of the sun, with sudden fear of change, perplexes monarchs. It was forbidden to describe the king as perplexed, and in this period Republican supporters were hunted down and strung up. Previously, in England's brief republic, the interregnum of 1649 to 1660, the levellers, who were not early socialists, but rather highly opinionated investigative journalists, had seen their leader twice put on trial for treason. But John Lilburn found the Achilles heel in Oliver Cromwell's body politic, the jury, which both times stood up to the government, and acquitted Lilburn for his incendiary pamphlets. So did the jury that in 1670 acquitted the Quakers William Penn and William Mead for preaching their religion, despite the judge's direction to convict. Although locked up for two days without food or fire or even a chamber pot, the jurors insisted on returning a verdict of not guilty. The government had them imprisoned for disobeying the judge, but ultimately the courts decided that jurors were entitled to follow their own consciences. The jurors that acquitted Lilburn and Penn held a candle for free speech that occasionally flickered in defamation trials in later centuries, until they were abolished in such cases by Nick Clegg and the coalition government in 2013. William Caxton's printing press had begun rolling at Westminster in 1476, and it was not long before the King's judges in the Star Chamber devised ferocious punishments for sedition, cutting off the ears of Puritan preachers. A second offence meant the stumps of their ears would be cut off as well, with the letters SL, for seditious libeller, burnt into their foreheads. At the time of these barbaric penalties for political speech, the Star Chamber, in effect the King's private court, was faced with a problem that too many great people in the realm were killing themselves in the course of settling their quarrels by duelling. So it devised an alternative to fighting a duel with pistols, a law of civil libel, which the judges soon developed in a way that was designed to encourage plaintiffs to hazard their money rather than their life, by legal presumption that all defamatory statements were false. This presumption survives today, although it is absurd. Defamatory statements are often true, or at least partly true, and it remains the ludicrous reason why the burden of proof is thrown on the defendant. Vladimir Putin gushes lies to justify his barbaric attack on Ukraine. These lies are 
for people in Russia, fact. And his lickspittle MPs have rushed through a law to make it a crime for anyone to deny them by publishing the truth. Such censorship is an anathema to a nation like Britain, which boasts of its history and tradition of free speech. But wait a minute. As the Privy Council, comprising English law lords, pointed out, free speech does not mean free speech. It means speech hedged in by all the laws against defamation, blasphemy, sedition, and so forth. It means freedom governed by law, and governed by lawyers, who act for the very rich to wage a bloodless but nonetheless scary war in the form of litigation against those who attempt to criticise or expose them. Lawfare, in this sense, has come to mean the use of legal strategies to harass or intimidate publishers, to make them pay, literally, in large and unrecoverable, even if they win, legal fees, and in heavy damages and their own legal fees if they lose. This is not a new problem, but it has come into recent focus as publishers of prescient books about Putin have been frightened and deterred by lawyers acting for his oligarch friends, threatened with legal costs that can run to millions of pounds. You cannot blame lawyers for using the law, but that law is antipathetic to serious journalism and must be reformed if the fourth estate is to function effectively in our democracy by scrutinising the wealthy and the powerful. Lawfare is a weak pun, with a pejorative tinge when used by those on the receiving end of writs for libel and breach of privacy. The term originated in America in the 1950s, first used by army chiefs who objected to legal actions brought by civil liberties groups over discrimination in the military. In Brazil, the label was hung on the right-wing judicial organs that concocted corruption allegations against the country's once and recently re-elected president, Lula da Silva. In Britain, perhaps the best example of lawfare against freedom of speech was Mrs Thatcher's courtroom crusade to stop newspapers from reporting any details of the former MI5 officer Peter Wright's autobiography, Spycatcher, while many copies of the book were being sold in the US and around the world. The word came into vogue in Britain in 2022 as a description of the work of reputation lawyers who had been issuing threats and writs against authors and publishers of books about Russian oligarchs, many of whom would be sanctioned by the British government after their friend and benefactor Putin invaded Ukraine. The most notable victim was a distinguished journalist, Catherine Belton, author of Putin's People, How the KGB Took Back Russia and Then Took on the West, which attracted a sudden blizzard of legal actions from Roman Abramovich and three other oligarchs, and from Rosneft, Russia's national oil company, claiming that the book libeled them. It was estimated that this would cost her publishers £5 million to fight successfully, and more than twice as much if they lost, a real prospect because of the unfair rule in English libel cases that the defendant bears the burden of proof of truth and other defences. There had been preliminary skirmishes before the case settled, at a cost to Harper Collins of £1.5 million in legal fees, and a cost to Belton of a year of stress and exhaustion in defending statements of great public interest that she believed were true. The court-enforced settlement was, as usual, strictly confidential, so the public cannot appreciate what infringements of free speech its terms require. This is the perennial problem of defending allegations about Russians and wealthy claimants from the Middle East, or indeed from Britain, 
namely the impossibility of proving truth when it is hidden behind offshore trusts or in tax havens, or has come from sources who fear reprisals. The law of libel, unlike any other civil law, puts the burden of proof on the defence, and however firmly and reasonably the author believes a defamatory statement, they must nevertheless prove its truth by evidence that is admissible in court. This is the main reason why, at a count some years ago, 95% of libel claims were either won or settled on terms that required withdrawal of the allegations. The Belton case became notorious, settled as it was a few months before Putin went to war. The claimants certainly were not in need of money, and Putin's people had been published a year before they took action. The flurry of writs came only after Alexei Navalny, Putin's political foe, had displayed the book in public. The legal actions were initially heard by a judge, who, as British judges usually do, found that the book bore a number of defamatory meanings, which means merely that it tends seriously to lure a claimant in the estimation of right-thinking people. The judge sent the case forward to a multi-million pound trial. This was a political lesson for the UK media. Defame Putin and his cronies at your peril. They hardly needed it. Over the previous few years, books had gone unwritten or had been censored or simply not published for fear of defamation actions about statements reasonably believed to be true, but not capable of proof by evidence admissible in a British court. Typical was a book by Karen de Wisher, Putin's kleptocracy, who owns Russia, which was turned down by Cambridge University Press. Its editor praised her manuscript, but wrote in rejection, the risk is high that those implicated in the premise of the book, that Putin has a close circle of criminal oligarchs at his disposal, and has spent his career cultivating this circle, would be motivated to sue. The editor added that even if they won, the costs would be ruinous. Another reason why the UK's claim to be a land of free speech is asinine when it comes to investigation of things that really matter especially when those investigations cast aspersions on people of great wealth. Such people are embraced by British judges. As one judge recently said of an international businessman, his professional achievements and family wealth make him a rare member of a small elite in the world of business. Members of this elite class are attracted to London, and it is in the public interest that the reputation of such people should not be unlawfully damaged. Their business activities are of importance to the economic well-being of this country. An importance that, all too often, judges permit to outweigh freedom of critical speech about their business activities. But it is the current state of British law that allows this. Judges, not Parliament, have fashioned the most recent threat to press freedom, the sprawling growth of a law against the invasion of privacy. Britain, to its discredit, had no protection for privacy at all until the 1998 Human Rights Act reproduced Article 8 of the European Convention on Human Rights. Everyone has the right to respect for his private and family life, his home and his correspondence. Respect is fine, unless the public interest requires exposure of mansions bought with laundered money or the use of family trusts to avoid tax, or a private life that is abusive of a partner, or confidential documents that show corruption. The public interest may justify publication, but wealthy complainants can readily put a stop to this by obtaining an injunction forbidding release of any information in relation to which they claim 
a reasonable expectation of privacy. They simply sue for the civil wrong, called a tort, of misuse of private information, and obtain injunctions readily enough by showing that they are more likely than not to succeed at trial. The information, no matter how important, cannot be published, and media defendants often give up at this point because news is a perishable commodity and a trial could take years, or because of the prohibitive costs of an eventual trial, whether they win or lose. The rot began fairly precisely in 2004 to 2005, when both the top court in the UK, then the House of Lords Judicial Committee, and the European Court of Human Rights decided that two much-photographed women, the supermodel Naomi Campbell and Princess Caroline von Hanover of Monaco, had a reasonable expectation of privacy when they walked down a public street. These highly questionable results were reached by majority decision. Campbell had strongly denied that she had ever used illegal drugs, but she was photographed entering Narcotics Anonymous. Princess Caroline was a fashionable celebrity who was part of Monaco's royal family, and sometimes took on official duties. But the Euro Court ruled that she must be protected from publication of harmless photographs showing her shopping and riding. Her right to privacy extended beyond the family circle and included a social dimension or a zone of interaction even in a public context. For this incoherent reason, an enforceable right of privacy over social and financial networks was soon being claimed by kleptocrats and conmen alike. So privacy actions proliferate to deter or freeze investigative journalism by suppressing information that is factual. The courts consider that a reasonable expectation of privacy covers a very wide field, not only one's physical or mental health, but, quote, racial or ethnic characteristics, the generality of personal and family relationships, information conveyed in the course of personal relationships, a person's political opinions and affiliations, a person's religious commitment, personal financial and tax-related information, personal communications and correspondence, matters pertaining to the home, past involvement in criminal behaviour, involvement in civil litigation concerning private affairs, and involvement in crime as a victim or a witness. Any self-respecting kleptocrat with a mansion and a super-yacht and a tax-avoidance scheme has a vast amount of information he or she can call on the courts to protect from exposure, unless the defending author or journalist can prove, the burden of proof, of course, being on the defendant, that publication serves an overriding public interest, and the public interest in freedom of speech is not enough. Most cases will involve information obtained from companies or government departments in breach of confidence. So judges say that keeping confidences is in the public interest, as much as, or even more than, freedom of speech. So the law does not pit one person's privacy against everyone's right of free speech. It favours privacy unless it can be outweighed in a balancing exercise with the public interest. But this judicial balancing exercise is a nonsense. The two cannot sensibly be compared. All it means is that judges impose their own prejudices and preferences to decide which is to prevail. Most High Court judges spend their professional lives as commercial lawyers, and have a property-based outlook when it comes to balancing a right to keep commercial secrets against the right of free speech. For them, this is like balancing hard cash against hot air. This ruling was applied by the UK's Supreme Court in 2022 
to prevent Bloomberg from reporting a highly significant development in tackling corruption. The public judgment is littered with unnecessary name redactions, but it appears that a journalist from Bloomberg News got hold of an official request, presumably from the Serious Fraud Office, and apparently to the courts of Hong Kong, to provide information about an allegedly crooked businessman and his company, frequently named and criticised in the UK Parliament. But the Supreme Court merely ruled that ZXC had a reasonable expectation that investigations into his alleged corruption should be kept private. As a Supreme Court decision, the Bloomberg case carries great weight. A month or so after it was delivered, it deterred the Metropolitan Police and then the press from revealing the names of persons who had been issued with fines for attending Downing Street parties in breach of Covid rules, unless they chose to out themselves. At the time of writing, it was preventing the publication of the name of a Conservative MP arrested for rape. What is striking is that none of the Supreme Court judges could discern any public interest in publishing the names of suspects, even though it is well known, especially in rape cases, that doing this often causes more witnesses to come forward, sometimes with evidence of other crimes, and occasionally with evidence that exonerates the suspect. It is also a boon to the watchdog function of the press to alert the public to the behaviour of law enforcers, which is often ineffective or incompetent or overzealous. See the disgraceful behaviour of the Met in Operation Midland, searching without good reason the homes of Lord Britton and Bramall and the former MP Harvey Proctor. The Supreme Court members seemed oblivious to these public goods, which were incapable of counterbalancing the privacy right claimed by ZXC and his company X Limited. The full story, including their real names, was set out in the court's closed judgment. Damages for injuries reputation tend to be more than the law awards for the loss of an arm or a leg, and more than the Criminal Compensation Board awards to those who have suffered grievous bodily harm or rape. The real problem is that free speech about the wealthy is now prohibitively expensive. Damages are dwarfed by legal costs that run to millions. The going rate for KCs is heading towards £1,000 an hour, with a fashion accessory, a junior, at up to two-thirds of the price. Then come the solicitors, a team of partners, employed solicitors, paralegals and clerks, whose bill is much higher. For oligarchs, of course, this is chicken feed, but for authors and small magazines it can be fatal, and big media groups often do not fight even when they have a good case if the claimant is a powerful corporation or a billionaire bent on revenge. Newspapers, book publishers, authors and broadcasters all know that fighting in action, even if it takes only a week in court, will cost both sides over £1 million, which the loser will have to pay. It was estimated that the Johnny Depp libel case against The Sun in 2020 cost him £10 million, and he had to pay the newspaper's costs of £5 million. As for kleptocrats and foreigners who have been formally sanctioned by the UK government, the sanction should deprive them of the right to bring any action in England, because they no longer have a reputation here. Why should foreign individuals or corporations, sanctioned for war crimes or serious human rights abuses, be allowed to use our courts in order to win money and discourage reporting about their crimes? Incredibly, the Sanctions Act 2018 expressly permits them to do so, by exempting money sent to the UK to pay fees for genuine legal advice and litigation. 
In the first months of Putin's war on Ukraine, his most odious sanctioned oligarch, Yevgeny Prigozhin, Putin's chef, continued his libel action against Elliot Higgins, founder of the investigative website Bellingcat, who had published evidence of Prigozhin's connection with the Wagner Group, Russia's brutal mercenaries. It took four more weeks of bombing before Prigozhin's law firm asked to be discharged, without being required to pay Higgins' costs. But the Sanctions Act should have prevented them from suing on behalf of a sanctioned oligarch in the first place. For all that Britain boasts about free speech, it has had a wretched history here, other countries do it better. American law gives much surer protection to defamatory words if they are published in good faith about public figures. And most European laws treat defamation as no big deal, providing a right of reply for those attacked, or else an order for retraction, rather than heavy costs and damages. It has been estimated that the cost of obtaining a remedy at trial for wrongful publication in Italy and France amounts on average to €15,000, whereas in the UK it is very often in excess of £1 million. Perhaps it is the English way to have an almost supernatural belief in the importance of reputation, notwithstanding Iago's point that it is oft got without merit and lost without deserving, and hence to devote much precious court time to forensic struggles over the meaning of words. It took a threat of real war to wake members of Parliament up to lawfare. Their counter-offensive, however, was aimed at reputation lawyers, who were named, blamed and shamed for offering legal intimidation services to the corrupt, to organise crime, to the Russian state or to its proxies. They were white-collar collaborators who had corrupted the British justice system. It did not occur to these fulminating MPs that perhaps it was the British justice system that was unjust, being tilted against freedom of expression long before Putin's friends took advantage of it. But this time action was promised quickly and effectively by the Justice Secretary, namely an anti-slap law and a modern Bill of Rights, with a presumption in favour of freedom of speech. Nothing less, or so Dominic Raab claimed, than a free speech revolution. SLAP stands for Strategic Lawsuits Against Public Participation, a nonsense name dreamt up by American academics. In the US, more than 30 states have adopted anti-slap laws, enabling judges to strike out defamation and privacy claims that abuse the legal process because their primary objective is to stop legitimate reporting. This is not a difficult task for an American judge, who can readily dismiss claims that undermine the First Amendment to the US Constitution, which protects speech unless it is not only mistaken, but also made maliciously or recklessly. Anti-slap action may be taken immediately after the abusive suit is filed, and, this is rare in the US, legal costs may be awarded to the media defendant. In England, meanwhile, the first problem was how to define a slap. Raab described it as an action where the primary objective is to harass, intimidate, and financially and psychologically exhaust one's opponent via improper means. But this primary objective will be impossible to prove. How can solicitors' letters, required by the pre-action protocol, be called improper when they demand redress for a libel? It might be possible to craft a law applicable to all claimants in all cases that gives a wider meaning to abuse of process and entitles a judge to strike out an otherwise good claim if it is 
inappropriate to be tried because, for example, it invokes foreign facts or transactions that cannot be scrutinised by admissible evidence in a London courtroom, or the claimant has refused offers of other remedies, mediation or recourse to IPSO, or there is a stark inequality of arms, or a trial would be disproportionate or would not settle the quarrel. These are some of the factors identified in a model law promoted by the UK Anti-Slap Coalition, established in January 2021, and co-chaired by the Foreign Policy Centre Index on Censorship and English Pen, with widespread support from media figures, although judges would be reluctant to use it, and its complexities would make more money for reputation lawyers, and more still when decisions under it go to appeal. This model law does nothing to remedy the defects in the present law. Reforms to end the unequal justice dispensed by defamation and privacy laws and lawyers are not difficult to identify, but they appear nowhere in Raab's plans for a Bill of Rights to strengthen protection for freedom of speech. His rather squalid exercise is designed to prevent citizens from easily accessing human rights protections and actually does considerable damage to the rights of the media to raise free speech issues in criminal or commercial litigation or in any context involving what the government claims to be national security. Genuine media law reform must begin with the burden of proof in defamation placed where it belongs, on claimants who seek money and threaten publishers with millions of pounds in legal costs unless they expurgate newsworthy articles. The media, which is on the defensive every time it currently appears in court, must be given some real protection. For example, to resist privacy injunctions against public interest stories and balancing acts in which judges trained in the protection of property and corporate secrecy rate these values more highly than the public good in exposing corruption and malfeasance. Lawfare disrupts democracy by enabling the wealthy to intimidate publishers and suppress news and opinions that the public are entitled to hear. It is, for the most part, fought below the waterline in confidential letters between lawyers and trips to a judge in chambers behind closed doors, or in the offices of taxing masters, privately assessing costs. The struggles that come to the surface, like that over Putin's people, Roman Abramovich and the oligarchs versus Catherine Belton, only provide examples of the lawfare that has gone on exponentially for decades and has deterred and diminished investigative journalism. It is not sufficient to shame and blame the London reputation lawyers. The US Congress is now suggesting that they be denied visas and have their money confiscated if found in US banks. Lawfare will only end when the laws are changed. They speak the only language that predatory libel lawyers understand. You've been listening to the TLS. This was A Town Called Sue. How Russian oligarchs use British courts to close down investigative journalism by Geoffrey Robertson from the issue of January the 20th, 2023. It was read by Martin Buchanan for NOAA.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.